0: your own. You are not your own. You see, Corinth was a city that was given over to the worship of sex. The temple of Aphrodite in those days, um, she was known as the goddess of beauty and love, was often lined up with thousands of prostitutes. And back then, prostitution was not necessarily frowned upon. It was seen as Something good that in fact could bring blessing and fortune from the gods. And around all about us, in our immediate city, in our culture around, in the world, people look at sex in the same way. Current also had numerous slaves. It was a place that was known for slavery. And in the midst of the slavery market, there was a business of buying and selling slaves. And so the slave masters would trade slaves amongst themselves. And so a slave could be transferred from one master to another based on how much the previous master had valued that slave. And in the midst of all that was going on there, slavery, this whole activity of sexual worship, Paul had preached the gospel to the Corinthians. And Paul used the picture of human beings being slaves to sin. And Jesus, being the one who stepped in And paid the price of our debts. So that just as people back then were slaves. The whole of humanity were slaves to sin. And those who had come to believe in the work of Christ. Who had come to trust in him. Who had come to know salvation by him. In that sense have been bought. They have been bought from their old ways of living and they now belonged to a new master Jesus and in verse 19 Paul paints that picture of who these Corinthian believers are he says you are not your own for you were bought with a price but the question for them was we're still living in this culture that is filled with all manner of perverse lifestyle. How do we live? The first verse there, verse 12, shows us one of two slangs or two slogans that were going on around in the community of Corinth. The commentators debate whether these slogans originated from the church or if it was widely known among the Corinthians. But that's not for us to settle this morning. But for us to look at verse 12 and verse 13 and see those two slogans that, in a sense, were influencing the lives of these believers who had come to know Christ who had come to trust in him and so our first main point is two slogans in verse 12 Paul says all things are lawful for me if we go back to the picture of the slavery and the fact that these believers have been set free and so for them Christ had given them freedom Christ has set them free from their life of sin. And for some of them, they were thinking, well, therefore, we've got the right to do anything we want, to live without any limits, to live without any control. You see, yes, if you go back to the last two verses of last week's sermon, yes, Christ had come into their lives, had washed them, had sanctified them, had justified them, he had saved them, but the new life that they now live was not meant to be an excuse to live anyhow. See, today we hear the phrase, or maybe today's slogan, "Once saved, always saved," and there are Christians who would say, "Well." That doctrine is not true. But let's take a step back and understand that when Christ truly saves someone, he has saved them. So it is true that the Christian is free. The Christian is free both from sin and from the law. It is true that whoever Christ has saved is saved. But you see, the freedom in Christ is not an excuse to live anyhow. And if you use the freedom that you have in Christ to live a lifestyle of sin, why well, say, well, God's grace covers it all? Then you probably have to consider if you are really saved. And this. The whole issue of freedom, Paul dealt with in other letters. For example, in, in, in Galatians, he writes to them that for freedom, Christ has set you free. But he reminds them not to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You see, just like a swing moves from, you know, one extreme to the other, The Christian life can move to the extreme of legalism. Where some people say, you know, if you don't do all this and that, you are not a believer. And the other extreme is the extreme of complete liberty. Where people say, well, I am free in Christ. I am free to live anyhow. Paul says, yes, all things are lawful for me. There is true freedom in Christ. But not all things are helpful. I will not be dominated by anything. You see, sin is slavery. A lifestyle of sin enslaves you. It dominates you. As a man once said, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. That is... The domination that sin enslaves us with. And it's easy to, to get into patterns of habit that you cannot break free from. You see, a freedom in Christ is not an excuse to live anyhow. But a freedom that we have in Christ should lead us to obedience to a new master. So, the first slogan was one of freedom. The second one was about desire. In verse 13, food is meant for stomach, and stomach for food, let's say. And God would destroy both one and the other. human person is both a soul and a body. And what happens at death is. That that union is destroyed. And we believe that the soul goes to be with the Lord. But you see, that's not God's ultimate goal for us. See, just as Jesus was raised physically. Just as Jesus was raised by the power of God. The believer also will be raised Some few days ago, I was just speaking with my housemate, and I don't know how the conversation got into bodies. And he said, Well, you stand in front of the mirror and you realize that no matter how you try, you're not the same as you were yesterday. And the fact is, each and every one of us, we are getting old. But the hope is that the body will be resurrected. Just as Christ's body was. And so it matters today, if you're a Christian, what you do with your body. Because it says a lot about what you believe. And so if you take the body that you say belongs to the Lord, and then give it over to immorality, rather than to the service of the Lord. And the Bible reminds us and tells us that that is wrong. God's plan for our bodies, for the body of the believer, is resurrection, not destruction. So these were the two slogans that were going on in current, and we are influencing the church. The freedom to live anyhow. And that desire that no matter what, I have to satisfy this desire. But Paul says, no. Your body belongs to the Lord. He is your master. And then Paul goes on with uh, three questions. He asks them. And these questions begin with four words. Do you not know? In verse 15 16 and 17, and in verse 19. So let's take a look at each of those questions. The first one, in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Growing up, we used to sing the song, my head, my shoulder, my knees, my toes, all belongs to Jesus. And in a sense, just as we sing that song, the apostle says that just as your body has parts of arms and legs and eyes, the same is for Christ. See, it's a picture to show the nature of the relationship between the believer and Christ. So just as your bodies, just as your arms, your legs are joined to your bodies, we are joined to Christ. So that just as Christ died, we died. Just as Christ was raised, we were raised to a new life. And so believers are people who are done with the past. And then how does one who has been made holy in Christ, who is a member of Christ? Holy body. Take that holy body and then join it to an unholy person. Post response is emphatic. Never. God forbid, he says. You are members of Christ. Secondly, he says... You are one spirit with Christ. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And yet the word joined, as it's more strong than... Here it shows. In a sense, it's referring to something that is united, that is glued together. That clings together. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here Paul goes back to the picture of God's plan in creation. That God's plan in creation is that this sort of union will be fulfilled only in the context of marriage. The word says, well, today it doesn't matter. The word says that is if you believe that, you are stuck in the past. And so the desire should be gratified in a sense. The word says, well, it's, it's just a recreational activity. It doesn't really matter. The Bible says that there is no such thing as casual sex because it unites the two. I've been one of my favorite books. I won't say the title. If you want to know the title, you can come and meet me later. But in that book, the author focused on this very, a Christian author focused on this very idea of how the world looks at sex and how that has influenced the church. And I just want to read a paragraph or two from that book. Now, she's writing from an American context, but I believe that that is indeed true in so many parts of the world and even for us. She writes, The Washington Post suggested that it is healthy when teenage girls refuse to conflate love and sex. Sometimes they coexist, sometimes not. The nation asks defiantly, why would sex have an everlasting warranty of love attached to it? Why indeed, if the body is just a piece of matter, can it be stimulated for pleasure with no meaning for the whole person? A video put out by Children's Television Workshop Widely used in sex education classes defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. Then she goes on to talk about the hookup culture where partners are referred as friends with benefits. But she says that is just a euphemism because they are not really even friends. You just keep it purely sexual. And that way people don't have mixed expectations. No one gets hurt, except when they do. You see... If you or I believe what we like in the Bible and reject what you or I don't like, then it's not the Bible that you believe. It's yourself. And that is where the real problem is. Because the real problem is in the heart. The real problem, that is where sin begins. It is in the heart and if Christ is your Lord, your Savior then it matters if you believe what he says about this, not what the word says about it or your friends look at you and say well you are stuck in the past you are old school but your business as a Christian is not to serve what they say. It's to live in obedience to your master, to your Lord. From next week, um, Pastor James will be dealing on marriage. So I wouldn't dwell on this, but it's just to remind us that the picture here is also a picture that the Bible paints as a relationship between Christ and the church, that we are one spirit with him. Just as that union of marriage, it's a bond. Do you not know that you are one spirit with Christ? That is the second question Paul asks. And the third one in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This is um, a picture that would have been so clear to them. Because as I said in the introduction, prostitution was a business in the temple of the goddess. And so, the belief that that was where the presence of the goddess, Aphrodite, was. And so it was, in a sense, part of worship for them. But Paul turns that on its head. He says the body of the Christian is where the presence of God by his spirit dwells. So the same Holy Spirit who, who saved them now dwells within them. It is God himself living in the Christian. And it's quite a privilege to have God living within you. It is a marvelous capacity to hold God, to be intimately related to the greatness and majesty and glory of God. To have God within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is within you. And so, to take that very temple and defy it, it brings the body of the person who is a temple of God to a wrong union. Therefore, again, it's basically the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of wrong worship so rather than offering your body as a living sacrifice to Christ, to God, you're offering yourself as a worship to an idol. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you see this very presence in the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in us, is what enables us to fight sin. Because Paul goes on from the three questions, he gives them two commands. Two commands of how to, in a sense, fight the sin of sexual immorality. The first command is to flee from it. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, there are those of us here who fear dogs, I will try not to mention names. And so when you see a dog coming, racing towards you, what do you do? You run away. You see, sexual sin is in a class of its own. Yes, it is one of the saints that Paul mentions in verse 9 and in chapter 5, verse 9 of chapter 6 and in chapter 5. But there is something it does to someone. It is a different sin. It's in a different class of its own. He says every other sin a person commits, it's outside the body. Take drunkenness, for instance. When, you, when people get drunk, most times they are trying to escape something. And so they take bottles of beer and wine and fuel themselves. But for sexual immorality, you are, you're taking your, your whole body and you're giving it to someone else. It is a different kind of sin. And the only answer to it, Paul says, is to flee from it. He doesn't say, you know, don't play with it. He doesn't say don't pursue it. He doesn't say, well, don't try to negotiate or come to terms or come to an agreement or a compromise. He doesn't say, Well, don't test your strength. He doesn't even say pray about it. He says, run, flee, escape, just as Joseph did. That very picture, he says, run away from it, flee. That is the command he gives. And the temptations are everywhere. You turn on your TV, for those of us who watch TVs, on social media, on the internet, on ads, you you want to watch a football game, it's on the website. It pops up. The temptations are all over there. And then the question is, in the midst of this temptation, you are tr- you're, you're trying your best as a believer to live a pure life. How do you, Paul says, flee from it? Maybe you have to completely avoid some websites. Maybe there are some Friends and relationships you have to break. Again, all things are not helpful. The only answer is to flee from it. To run away. No, I know that this is on one hand a sensitive subject. But it's one that we have to listen to. It's one that we have to hear. Because, frankly, I want to step back and say, and talk to brothers and sisters, okay? One, just reminding myself of that very article that I, I read some lines from. You know, some of us would say, well, This is someone that I love, I'm committed to in a sense. But the Bible reminds us that if that relationship is outside the marriage and you're committed to this sort of lifestyle in it, it is sin. And if someone is just using you as an object, then you don't really know your value. You don't really know who you are in Christ. It's slavery to sin. That's what it is. And the only way, the only answer to it is to flee from it, run away from it. I've seen people say, Well, at the end of it, he goes on and, you know, find, when he's ready to get married, he finds someone else. And that happens. The man has just used you as an object. These are real issues that we have to speak to ourselves about. Flee from it. And on the other hand, for brothers, you see, the whole internet space is built to capture our eyes. Because that is in a sense, the gates to get into us. And if there are websites you have to shut down, run away from them. Run away from them and flee from them. Fill yourself with Christ. Turn off the lies around you that tells you this is ultimate fulfillment. Rather, expose yourself to the light of God. And yes, for those who have failed, there is forgiveness in Christ. There is restoration. The Bible reminds us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And if you need to seek help in another brother, please do it. You'll probably find that he is also struggling with the same thing. It's a temptation that is all around us. But we have to flee from these things and pursue purity and holiness in Christ. Flee, Paul says. And secondly, we are to glorify God in our bodies. Says you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, this is what makes the world see that there is something different about Christians. That we do not belong to ourselves. That we have been bought by the most powerful person in the universe. In the previous chapters in Corinthians, Paul has referred to Jesus as a Lord of glory. That all our lives now point to him. Including what we do with our bodies. It's to glorify him. It's for the world to see and say yes. They might be doing what we don't agree with. But they are living their lives. In keeping with what they say they believe. We have to glorify God. In our bodies. See. So the people fight a lot about, you know, rights. At first I thought about titling this sermon, My Body, Whose Choice? But I thought that would, that would evoke a lot of controversies, and I'm bringing it back now. But people fight a lot about rights, you know, I have the right to do this with my body. I have the right to do that and that. But here, Paul says that is not the language Christians should speak in this context. The language you should be speaking is our responsibilities with our bodies. There's a lot of talk about rights, no one wants to talk about responsibilities that people have. We have a responsibility to glorify God in our bodies. Are you doing that? The challenge for us today is, is to flee from those things. The challenge for us today is to glorify God. To remind ourselves that we are not our own. I do not own my body. It's countercultural Because people believe that they own their bodies. But the Christian doesn't. You belong to the Lord. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, this might be a tough subject for us, but it is God's word. And we have to deal with it. We have to obey It's a moment of silence before we pray and sing.